Children, you're dismissed. You can go ahead and follow Miss Flo up the stairs. Goodness, goodness, goodness. Give myself away. Give myself away. Because that's really the point, isn't it? The point of all of it. We were made for His glory. We were made to worship Him. We were made to exalt Him. So really giving ourselves away is not really giving ourselves away at all. It's returning to God what rightfully belongs to Him. Amen? Alright, we're going to do a little bit of review. Um, but if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Um, we're going to be there among other places, but that's a good general starting place for you. So you guys know that we're in the middle of a series. Um, I confessed when we first started this series that I didn't really want to preach it um, because it kind of lays down some requirements. And, you know, it's so fun and so enjoyable to just preach about the death and the resurrection and the blessings and the glory and the majesty of God. But sometimes we have to preach a more pragmatic or practical perspective. Not that we forget those things, because those things are the center and the core of everything that we talk about, but sometimes we have to show from a perspective of the resurrected Christ and of the glorious majesty of our sovereign God the things that He's commanded us to do to be faithful stewards of His message. Because if we only ever focused or highlighted on nothing but the resurrection of Christ, then we wouldn't understand how to apply that resurrection to our life. So we preach the resurrection, we preach the crucifixion, we preach the sovereignty, and we preach the majesty, but we do so in a way to where we say, okay, what does that mean for us today? Okay, I was a sinner, and now because He died for me, and I accepted Him as my Lord and Savior and surrendered everything to Him, now what does that mean for me moving forward? Do I live my life the same way? No. Okay, if I don't live my life the same way after I meet Jesus as my Lord and Savior, then what's the difference? And sometimes we have to be practical and we just have to say, okay, this is the difference. These are the things that you should begin to see in your life or should begin to make an effort to apply to your life so that you can have what we've been calling faith and a good conscience. And so we've been preaching this series called Don't Be a Shipwreck. And it's from 1 Timothy 1, verse 19, where he says, Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. And we're like, okay, well, what is this? Because we have to know what this means, what the antecedent of this is, or the object that this is referring to, so that we know what if, will make us a shipwreck if we reject it. And we realized, okay, this has to be referring to faith and a good conscience. And so we looked at faith. Faith is simple. In verse 15 of that same chapter, he says, This saying is trustworthy and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the basis of our faith. That is the foundation, Jesus Christ, the foundation that no other man can lay but that which is already laid, which is Christ Jesus. He is the foundation of our faith. We realize He came into the world to save sinners. If we reject that, we don't even have a faith. We have to understand that Jesus Christ is the infinite God-man, God come in the flesh to live a perfect life, present Himself as a spotless sacrifice, to die on the tree as our substitution and be raised from the dead to provide us the opportunity to have eternal life. Right? We have to acknowledge that. If we don't acknowledge that, we don't have a faith. We don't have a leg to stand on. But the part that we were going to focus on in this series is, what does it mean by good conscience? Because faith is easy. We can define that. But what does it mean by good conscience? 
and you think about Pinocchio and you think about Jiminy Cricket and how he whispered in his ear, you know, you probably don't want to do that. Every time Pinocchio started to do something, Jiminy Cricket was right there whispering in his ear. Come on, y'all have seen the Disney cartoon. At some point in time, no matter how many years ago it was, everybody's seen the cartoon. Jiminy Cricket always following along, telling him, don't do that, don't do that. And that's a interesting, or you've seen the little cartoons, the old school ones, where somebody would be debating about a decision and they'd have the little angel appear on this shoulder and the little devil appear on this shoulder and they were arguing back and forth as a picture of the conscience, the battle of the conscience in our mind. When we're talking about a good conscience in relation to our faith, we're talking about that affirmation or that encouragement or that agreement that what we're doing is aligned with the will of God. It's really this simple. Are our actions and our lives reflecting that we hold a faith? If I looked at you and all of the the curtains and the walls and everything that you have up veiling your life and the deepest, darkest secrets of your mind and the things you do when nobody's looking and the thoughts you think when nobody knows, all of those things, if I looked at all of those things and then looked at somebody who had no idea who Jesus was, would I see any difference? That's really what we mean by a good conscience. Does your life show that you are a Christian? Does your life show that you live for God, that you think for God, that you strive after God, or does your life show that you think for you, you strive for you, you work for you, you labor for you? Is your life about you or is your life about God? That's really what we're talking about in a good conscience. We're talking about the life that reflects the faith that we say that we have. Because James says this, and remember this was our first message on this, James says that if you say that you have faith, you have to have works. He actually says faith without works is dead, being alone. He says, for as the body without the spirit or breath is dead, so is faith without works. So you think about a person who no longer has breath, they're dead. They're not capable of anything. They no longer can move and do their own thing. They're done. They're dead. The same is true with faith. If faith does not have a following work or if faith does not produce a work, then it's dead. It's useless. It's not even faith. The devils believe. Faith is so much more than believing. The devils believe and they tremble. They have the belief in God and they have the fear of God, but they do not have the works that follow the faith. And that's the difference. That's what we're wanting to look at. That's what you, if you reject this, then you make a shipwreck of your faith. So we really wanted to identify some things that we had to hold on to that should be products of our faith. So it's not about us looking and setting up a whole bunch of rules and saying if you don't do this, you're not saved. It's by us pointing out the biblical guidelines that say these should be products of the faith that you say that you have. Because your works can't save you. We believe that you are justified and saved by faith alone. Faith alone. In Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We believe that. But your faith has to produce a following work. And there's a reason that I keep saying this over and over and over again because so often we get up on this train where we say, well, you're justified by faith and. Every denomination or sect or derivative or heresy or cult that has its origins in Christianity. And the reason I said heresy and cold is because there are many that say, okay, we hold parts of the Bible, but not all of it. Every single one of them will say, yeah, you're saved by faith, plus works. You're saved by faith, plus this. That's not what we're saying. You're saved by faith in Christ alone. But if you don't have the works, then you may not really have the saved. 
if you don't have the lifestyle, you may not really have the faith. You may just have a head knowledge, an idea. You may be able to quote me book, chapter, and verse. You may, not, you may be able to say your technical plan of salvation, but your life has to reflect the salvation that you say that you hold. Otherwise, you probably don't hold that salvation that you say that you have. All right. So we looked at that and we said, okay, we want to look at the parable of the sower and we want to look at the four different types of ground. And then we also want to look in conjunction with that, the four main causes of a shipwreck. And yes, I googled the four main causes of a shipwreck so that I would know, okay, am I just blowing steam or is this really what causes shipwrecks? And so we put those two together. For example, in the parable of the sower from Matthew chapter 13, he says, a sower went out to sow. And later when he explains it, he says the sower is the Son of God. That's Jesus. He went out to sow. And he's sowing the seed of the Word of God. So the sower was good and the seed was good. The issue was with the types of ground that received the seed. So the first seed is the ground that was on the road or the wayside. And the seed couldn't get in the ground because the ground was so trodden and so hard that the birds of the air just came and plucked it up and ate it and went on their way. The seed never got invested in the ground. And when we looked at the type of shipwreck that that reflects, it was an error. Um, it was a failure by design, failure by equipment. It's when God has designed and set everything up to perfection. But... A little kayak, if it's used to go down the stream, works perfectly. But if you take that same little kayak and you put it in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, it's not going to last very long. If it runs into a hurricane or a great big gust of wind or you can't bring along the necessary supplies. So the problem is, is God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. But when we don't use those things in their proper application according to their design, that is when we're not good stewards or managers or overseers of the things that God has blessed us with, we're going to end up making a shipwreck of our faith. The design is perfect. How we use the design. The finances that we have are fine. How do we use those? How do we steward those? The gifts that God has given us are fine. How do we use those? The relationships God's put in our lives are fine. How do we use those? How do we steward those? How do we steward our time? How do we steward our energy? How do we manage the things that God has blessed us with? Do we manage them appropriately and according to the will of God and use them according to their design? Or do we try to put a kayak in the Atlantic Ocean? Or try to put the USS, the only one that comes to my mind is Arizona and it's sunk at Pearl Harbor, so forgive that comparison. But do we try to put a battleship in the middle of a creek? It's not going to work. There is a design specifically for a creek just as there is a design specifically for the Atlantic Ocean. Does that make sense? We have to use the things that God has blessed us with in the proper design that He has given them to us to be good stewards and managers and overseers of those things that God has given us. And that's what we covered last week. This week we're going to look at the second type of ground. And that's when He threw it among rocks and it took a little bit of root and it shot up really quickly and it was such a beautiful plant and everybody was like, wow, what a flower. And then the sun came out and it beat on it and it didn't have no root and so it dried up and withered away and died. And this is about relationships. Two types. And when you look at the parallel shipwreck, it's a navigational error. And navigation, you know, is longitude and latitude. That's how you find pinpoint a location on the map, longitude and latitude. Vertical 
and horizontal. It's interesting because we have two types of relationships in our life. We have vertical, our relationship with God, and we have horizontal, our relationship with fellow man. And God has given some very specific instructions about how we should deal with both relationships, how we should relate to God and how we should relate to our fellow man. In fact, in the Old Testament, He gave 613 of those instructions. That's the law. He gave the law. 613 rules that you had to follow to the T to be perfect. And they all dealt with one of two things. How we relate to fellow man or how we relate to God. And yeah, there were a bunch of derivatives on those laws like you have to be this clean to do this. But it was all in preparation of how to come before God, our vertical relationship, or how we treat our fellow man and restore that which is stolen, restore that which is damaged. How we treat our fellow man, our horizontal relationship, and how we treat God, our vertical relationship. But out of those 613 laws, we typically focus on 10 of them, don't we? When you reference the law, what are the first, first thing that pop in your mind? The Ten Commandments. Look at these. I, I wrote them down. I won't reference. It's in the Exodus, like 32, 33, something like that. Um, but the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image or an idol. You shall not take the Lord name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath, which is the Lord's day. And those are the very baseline roots of what the commandments actually said. Those four, all of them are about our relationship with God, right? No other gods. Don't take my name in vain. Don't use my name emptily. Empty. Emptily. Anyway. <laughs> Don't have any idols. And remember the day that I've set apart and said this day is holy. This day is blessed. Those four things are about our relationship with God. And then the next six, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. Those are about our dealings with our fellow man. And so much so that when Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, it said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Right? And then He follows up and He says, And the second one goes above the question that was asked, because they just asked, Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus goes up further and He says, And the second greatest is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On those two things, all 613 laws, all 10 commandments can be divided into two things. Love God and love man. Right? Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, everything that you have, all of your being, love God. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. This is our vertical relationship. But Paul, in Romans 13, verse 8, a scripture that I told you to go to, he reduces it even further. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The whole point of that is in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Paul says that the fulfillment of the entire law is based upon love. Jesus said all the law, all the commandments, all the prophets are summed up in two. Love your God and love your neighbor. And Paul says it's all summed up in the simple fact of love. And a while back we preached on love. And when we preached on love, we said love and faith have something in common. The fact that they have to have a work following. You can say that you have faith but if you have no works, then you don't really have faith. You can have works without having faith, but you cannot have faith without having works following. You can say that you have love, but love will always have works following. You can have works and not have love, but you cannot, cannot, cannot have love and not have works that follow. If you love somebody, your actions and your works will prove it. If all I ever had towards my wife was words, if all I ever had towards my wife was the saying, I love you, but I never did anything to show her that, I never did anything for her, then my love would be in words only. And Paul says this, he says, love in deed and action, in word and in truth, not in word only. It has to produce a work. It has to produce an action. Our love has to have something following it or it's not really love. Amen? Amen. All right. So, in those two relationships, longitude, latitude, vertical, horizontal, in those two relationships, we're going to look at those. Because this is one of the things that mark our having a good conscience. We already went over stewardship, now we're going to focus on relationship. And it's broke down in two. And I'm ending them all in ship, so that you can say shipwreck, ship. Right? It's a little memory technique, forgive me. Anyway, the first part is lordship. Our submission to Christ as our Lord. Flip back two chapters to Romans 10. Romans 10. And we're going to be in verse 9. So, in Sunday, on Sunday nights at 6.30, we've been doing something called evangelism training. And basically it's just how you lead someone to the Lord. Not apologetics, how you defend your faith, knowing all the reasons behind it, but simply if someone came to you and they were ready to give their life to the Lord, how you would lead them to the Lord. That's been the goal because it's staggering when you go to church and you talk to congregants. How many people in the church have no idea how to lead somebody to the Lord? Have no idea how to help somebody pass from death to life? And in that evangelism training, we've shown some different methods and we're going to show some more. But I told everybody there are four things that you have to have to pass from death into life. There are four things. Does anybody remember them? For those of you that have been in evangelism training? What are they? Yes. Four things. And for those of you that didn't hear her, you have to confess your sins. Because if you confess your sins, faithful and just is He that forgives you. You have to repent. 
or turn away from your sins. You cannot keep walking towards your sin and keep walking towards hell and say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you and I believe in heaven, but I'm going to continue to walk this way. You have to make the 180 degree turn and begin to pursue Christ and all the righteousness and the kingdom of heaven. And everything that you need will be added to you. That's the second part. The third part is you have to confess Jesus Christ as two things, your Lord and your Savior. And the reason for that is, is because the fourth requirement, you have to surrender your life to Him as your Lord. Let's read Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and when with the mouth one confesses and is, is blah, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone says, or for Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it goes on to justify. Faith comes by hearing and all of that. But the point is this. In the Old Testament, when the law was set up, that word Lord is a play on on the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. In the Old Testament, when you were praying, you could not refer to God by His name. You could not say Jehovah. You could not say Yahweh. You could not say they had no knowledge of Jesus at the time, but you could not say the Lord's name. God gave His name to Moses in the burning bush, the Tetragrammaton, the YHWH or YHVH. That's the holy name of God. And we added the vowel sounds to make Yahweh or Jehovah to make it pronounceable. But in the Old Testament, you could not say the name of God. You could not. You could refer to Him in conversation as Hashem, which means the name. But you could not say His name. And in prayer, you still could not say His name. You could refer to Him as Adonai, Master, Lord. But you could not say His name. That is how holy and how reverent they treated His name. Today we just throw it around in conversation. We stub our toe and we say, Jesus. And we throw His name around with little or no reverence or honor towards His name. That would have put you as a sentence to death in the Old Testament, throwing the name of God around if God Himself didn't strike you dead for it. The only time that the name of God could ever be said was one time a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would take the sacrifice, the blood of the atonement sacrifice, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat and the Shekinah glory of God, and he would put the blood on the mercy seat, and he was allowed to utter the name of God in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies after he went through numerous rituals to do that. That is the relationship and the reverence that they had towards the name of God. Not just the person of God, but the name of God. And that's the name that Jesus said, in my name you can pray. In my name. That's why that teaching of using the name of Jesus was so revolutionary is because it was something that was so far beyond anything that the apostles had ever even heard of because they weren't allowed to say the name, much less use it at their convenience to pray and cast out devils, to pray for people's healing. That's why Peter says, it's not by our works, but it's by the name of Jesus that this man was healed. 
because it's the name of Jesus. That's the avenue, the idea of lordship, that He is transcendent so far above and beyond anything that we could ever think or imagine, anything that we could even begin to fathom. He is Lord. That's why when we were praying earlier, a common thing that I do in my prayer is I say Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, the first and the last. It's not to be repetitious, to sound fancy. It's to remind myself that God is God and I am a man. I am a fallen man. I should, by my own merit, have no right to use His name. I should, by my own merit, have no right to approach Him in prayer. I should, by my own merit, be deserving of an eternity of damnation. But God opens up the door through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus that I might have relationship with Him and call upon Him and not just call upon Him as Adonai or Lord, but even go more specific and intimate and use His name. If you go somewhere like a business... For example, if you were to go see the mayor or if you were to go see a doctor, you usually say Dr. So-and-so and use their last name or you'll say Mr. So-and-so. But as you build that relationship, you may eventually be able to call upon them by using their first name. And it's a progression. The more you get to know them, the more intimately you can refer to them. For example, when I first meet somebody, you call them Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so. And then when you build that relationship, you start using their first name. And then if you get as close as you are with your spouse, you may begin to even use pet names. The name and the way that we reference somebody changes by the strength of our relationship. God didn't say, you call me only Lord. You call me only this. He gave us His name showing in that the avenue and the strength behind that intimacy that's available to us. When we say that we're justified by faith, justification doesn't just mean that our sins are paid for and that we're a blank slate. Justification has the connotation of relationship. That God paid, Jesus paid the way so that we would be reconciled to God. Then He rose from the dead so we might have life. But now He sits beside the Father making continual intercession for us so that we might have relationship. We might have intimacy with God. We might have communion with God. We might refer to God as our Father. As our Abba Father. We might get that intimate. We might get that close to to the Lord. Does that make sense? He is Lord. And that relationship is so crucial. Because if the only picture you ever have of Jesus is His arms spread like this on Calvary and you never have a picture of Him as the risen Son of God seated at the right hand of Majesty on high. If you never have that exalted, glorified picture of Jesus, but you only ever see the portrayal of Him on the cross and that's the only Jesus that you know, then you're falling short. Because yes, He's dead. Yes, He was crucified. But He rose. He rose from the dead. And that's where our power lies. That's where our faith lies. That's how we have a good conscience about the faith that we have because we might have a today and now relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and man and you'll either hate the one and love the other or vice versa. You cannot have two masters. You cannot serve God and yourself. That changes the the vernacular a little bit because we throw it in this third party. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and yourself. This is not a self-gratifying religion. Although there are wonderful blessings that God has provided for us, it's not about ourselves. It's about God first, regardless of the cost to me. 
God first regardless of the sacrifice. God first. His glory, His name, His eminent, His exaltation regardless of the cost to me. Because the glory that awaits us in the life to come is so much more that it's not even worthy to be compared with the sufferings and the cost of today. You can't serve God in yourself. We have this picture where we'll go through the Bible and we'll highlight the things that we like, the blessings, you know, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. You know, God is for us and not against us. You know, the love of Christ compels us. We go through and we look at all these wonderful, pretty verses. But then the verses that require some sacrifice, like deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, those are the verses that we skip over. And if we pick and choose what verses we hold and we get rid of the verses that we don't like, then we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping on ourselves. And I've said that time and time again and I'll say it again and again and again. If you go through this Bible and you only take out what you like and you disregard what you don't like, then you're worshiping yourself and not God. We have to take it in full or not at all. The Bible is either infallible or irrelevant. It's one or the other. There is no in-between. It's either perfect or completely useless. One or the other. The second aspect of this relationship is a horizontal relationship. Our relationship with fellow man. Remember, we preached that He is the head and we are the body. And we went into this long list of things, different aspects of the body. And I showed you guys this wonderful picture of Faith stubbing her toe in the hallway that night. And how you would have thought she stubbed her pinky toe. You would have thought she was dying by the moaning and the yelling and the, the falling over. And it was a beautiful picture. I just want you guys, every time you look at her, to see her stumbling and falling through the hallway. No. But you would have. You would have if you would have seen her and not known what had happened, you would have thought she was dying. And every single one of us have done the same thing. I've done it. I, one time I hit my toe on the metal part of our couch and split my toe open, and I really thought I was dying. She didn't think I was I thought I was dying. She laughed at me. But that's a little member of the body. And our whole body goes into shock and into agony over that little bitty member. And some of you that have dealt with broken bones and you've dealt with pain in your body, everybody stubbed their toe at some point. You know the feeling that it puts your whole body into the same is supposed to be true of us as a body. When one member suffers, the whole body reacts. When one member rejoices, the whole body rejoices with them. We're supposed to be concerned about every aspect of our body. Because you can bet for the next several weeks as I walked past that chair, that little metal part, I made sure I gave it a wide berth because I didn't want to hit my toe on it again. We show care and concern for our body. So often though, a few weeks after that happened, you know, you forget your little toes even there. And so often, unfortunately, in the body, we forget some of the members are even here until we see them on Sunday. You forget about your little toe until you're, you know, in the shower and you have to wash it. And then you forget about it until the next time you take a shower or stub it or something. We shouldn't do that. We should be a community of believers and know and value each one because we are one body. Matthew 25, I won't read it to you. I mean, I won't make you turn there. But basically it says this. It's the final judgment, and Jesus separates the goats on His left hand and the sheep on His right, the ones going to hell on His left hand, the ones going to heaven on His right. And the, it's interesting because the thing that He says to the ones that are going to heaven is, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And then the ones on His left hand side, 
He said, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And that's the commendation and the condemnation of the two separate groups. And they respond, both of them, when did we do this? And he says this statement to both of them. He says, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. As we treat the littlest or the least esteemed member of the body of Christ, that's really how we're treating Christ Himself. It's when Paul on the Damascus Road had his encounter with God and the heavens opened up and the light and he was blinded by the glory of God and he fell from his horse and all of that happened. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting me? Because Paul was killing and imprisoning members of the body of Christ. He was treating Christ in that manner. And how we treat others is a direct reflection of our relationship with Christ. It's a gauge. How close we are to God is a direct gauge or is gauged by how we treat one another. So look at the way you treat each other and see if you treat each other really in a manner that would reflect how close you should be with God. Do you have the time of day for somebody that wants a conversation or has a need? Or do you just blow them off? Because in your eyes, they're less significant. Or they're not worth that minute. A great measure, and this is from secular people, a great measure of a man or woman is how they treat not the superiors, not their equals, but how they treat those that they deem inferior to themselves. That's a great way to measure the character of a man or a woman. And the same is true in the body of Christ. I can measure how close you are to God by the way you treat those that you deem less significant than yourselves. It's not about how you treat the pastor or the pastor's wife, the first lady of the church. It's not about that. It's not about how you treat the musicians. It's not about how you treat those that you think are great tithers or they're in the fancy clothes that might be able to do something for you. It's about how you treat those that may never be able to help you in their entire life. That's why when Jesus says, when you invite somebody to the feast, don't invite somebody that can pay you back. Invite somebody that could never pay you back. How we treat those inferior to us reflects how close to God we actually are. There are a couple passages for you to prove my point. I don't want you to just think I'm just pulling stuff out of left field. These are from 1 John. 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. This is 1 John 2, 9-11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. For whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is 1 John 4, 19 and 20, and this is the punch. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The point of this and the aspect of today that we're focusing on on how not to make your faith a shipwreck, how not to ruin your faith, and how to truly get rooted in two areas. Rooted in your relationship with God, that He is Lord, and rooted in your relationship with fellow man, that we are one body. Because those rocks in the ground 
are things, misconceptions, misideals, things that will prevent us from taking root. It requires your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you identify those rocks in your life and get them out so that you may not be rocky ground, but that you may be fertile ground, that you may be able to get rooted in the body of Christ and produce fruit. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. Amen? Alright, so here's what we're going to do. I haven't been that long. I stopped for a second. Just so 